we've uh, moved into chapter 3. <clears throat> Ruth chapter 3. We start in verse 1. This is God's Word. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman, nearer than, a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could rec be recognized. And he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured it into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz, Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Let's pray again. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Every once in a while, I'll run into some old friend or acquaintance that hasn't seen me in 15 or 18 or 20 years, and they'll say, oh, yeah, so what are you doing now? And I tell them what I do. And uh, often the response will be something very flattering. They'll say, you? <laughs> you? And uh, uh, no one's more surprised than I am, uh, my friends. Uh, if you had told me uh, that one day I would be living in Memphis, of all places, I thought Memphis was in Texas. Uh, when I moved out, my friends bought me a cowboy hat. Uh, cowboy boots, cowboy boots. And uh, uh, if you told me that I'd be living in Memphis, that I would be slightly portly, as I was skinny my whole life, you taught me that I was going to be bald, uh, and that I was going to be on a, a pastoral staff of a thriving, reformed Germantown church, I would have said, Me? I wouldn't have believed it. 
Well, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules all things. For God to do that, he must be all-knowing. God knows everything. For him to rule over everything sovereignly, he must know all things. Now, there are earthly leaders and kings that rule over things. A king may have an entire territory. He may have lots of land. He may have subjects. He may have underlings that must report to his authority in his reign. Okay? Um, but he's not all-knowing. He doesn't know what kind of shampoo they use. God does. Okay? If there was one minute particle of information that was unknown to God, he would not be a ruler. His rule would break down right there. For him to be Lord over all creation, he must know all things. Further, for God to be sovereign, for him to rule over his entire uh, creation, he must have all power. To say that God is powerful or to say that God is very, 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 very powerful. If you put it in some kind of minstrel choir and they, they get up there and they sing, He is very, 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 very powerful. That's not good enough. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Not just potent. Omnipotent. And if He's not omnipotent, His rule breaks down. Because if there's one tiny little particle somewhere over which he does not have consummate control, then that means that tiny little particle is not in his dominion and is in some other dominion under control of someone else. God rules over everything he has made and he has absolute power. Third requirement of his sovereignty is that he's got to have absolute freedom. God is free to do whatever pleases Him. The Bible is so clear on that. The Lord does whatever pleases Him. And He is free to do it. And that's a hard concept to, for, for us to grasp because we don't understand absolute freedom. We think we understand freedom. We'll die for freedom. We want freedom. We want flexibility. But let's take your dog, for instance. Your dog roams around the house. It looks out the window and uh, kind of sniffs around and gets into trouble, spills over the trash. Is that dog free? No, it's trapped. Let's say you open up the door and you let the dog out. It roams around the yard. Is the dog free? No, there's a fence. Let's say you open up the fence. You let the dog out. Is the, is the dog then free? No, there are roads with dead dogs all over them. <laughs> dog's not free. What if you take him to the farmland and you let him run around the hills and the farmland and all? Is the dog free? I don't know, wait four or five hours and see if he needs water. You know, all of a sudden he finds that he's, he's in a cage by his very needs. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're like that dog. We think we're free. We think we're moving around, making decisions and all that stuff. And we're free in a certain sense, but we're not free in the way that God is free. He is sovereign over everything he has made. He is limited only by his own nature. God rules over everything that he has made. Now... What does that have to do with two widows in a very strange place in life? And what does that have to do with you and me? Well, I remind you that just a few short weeks earlier, Naomi is telling her old friends as she comes back to town, her hometown, and they say, Naomi, it's you. And she says, don't call me Naomi because that means pleasant. 
call me Mara because that means bitter, and the Lord has made my life bitter. He has brought misfortune upon me. All right, this is just a few weeks ago. Now, what does Naomi have on her mind? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me da, da, da. She's playing matchmaker. She's matchmaker now. Oh, yeah, my life is so bitter. Now I'm matchmaker. Ooh, guess what? I got this guy. There's Boaz over there, and she's ma making this match. And not unbeknownst to her, it's a match between a man and a woman from whose, whose bodies will come, from whose bloodline will come the Savior of the world, our Savior. How, how she does not understand how blessed she is. Even when she, and I say, rightly said, the Almighty has made my life bitter. She didn't know how blessed she truly was. Because our God is a God who knows all things, who, who is powerful over all things and reigns over what He has made. And, and that means that, uh, that life is not some big crapshoot. You know, sovereignty means that God is able. Providence means that he, he sustains and gives provision. And these are concerns that are very much on Naomi's mind right now. Look at verse 1, the text. One day Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you, here it is, where you will be well provided for? All right, listen to the King James Version. My daughter, shall not I seek rest for thee? that it may be well with thee. Who has in the New American Standard? I know my wife does. I bet she's the only one. Oh, a couple more. Listen to the, listen to the New American Standard. Um, Shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Huh? Security. Why is that so important to Naomi at this juncture? I'll tell you why. Look at verse 23 of the previous chapter. Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until what? The barley and wheat harvests were finished. All right? They're almost over. I mean, they, they've harvested and the, the stuff's on the threshing floor. They're whacking it. They're pitching the stuff in the air. They're winnowing. And uh, it's, her, the gig is a, about over. And Naomi's saying, you know, provisions, security, that it may go well with thee, that, that they might find rest. Well, it's an interesting point in our story. You know, Naomi's got, she wants to make a love connection. And it's an interesting point in our story because uh, thus far, you, you know that the book of Ruth is laced with all kinds of references to God and the, the players name his name and, they show, and, and this book shows him to be the supplier and the sustainer and the governor of things. And that even when the players are unaware, uh, unaware of it, we still, as the reader, see God's fingerprints all over the place. And here the emphasis shifts uh, somewhat to, to the... the the strategies of the characters involved. You know, look at the, verse, the first, verse, first nine verses. Uh, it's all this kind of like uh, caper action that Naomi's put together that they're carrying out. Here's a question for you. Is that okay? you got all this focus on who God is and, and all that. Now Naomi's going, well, gosh, we got to get provided for, so, uh, you know, I better take matters into my own hands. Is that okay? Yeah, it's Okay. She's using her God-given brain to make decisions just like we have to do every single day when we cross the street. She is taking things into her hands with an understanding that God yet reigns. Now, and by the way, she's got a God-given motive too, which is this issue of the kinsman redeemer. And uh, that shows up a couple times here, and we're going to talk about it more next time. But in a nutshell, the kinsman redeemer is simply a... Uh, 
a, a family member of a widow steps in, marries that widow to take care of her, to uh, pay for her debts, to afford her children an inheritance, to uh, recoup the, the, the property, and uh, to give that, that uh, uh, line, uh, you know, uh, longevity, protect that family name, okay? All right, with that said, look at this again. I'm going I'm to read, uh, read God's Word again. Listen to this. Chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? What's she thinking about? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, what did she just ask? What did she just ask? She asked, will you marry me? That's something to wake up to, isn't it? You're a kinsman redeemer. Do you know that? All right. I want to make a few comments on this, and I want to clear up some, some horrible, what I think are myths about this story. First of all, um, the, the winnowing and the barley and the threshing floor. Now, when you hear the term threshing floor, do you think of a building? I think of kind of like a gray cabin with a fireplace and a pot of stew on the stove or something. That's not it. A threshing floor is an area, you know, they've collected fields and fields and fields of grain. And it's in big, huge piles. And the threshing floor, you know what a sheaf is? It's a sheaf is a bunch of wheat that they've harvested, and they take it and they put it all in a big clump. That's a sheaf, and then they get a bunch of them. Those are sheaves. So they bring in the sheaves, and they take those sheaves and they whack them. And uh, they discard the stuff that doesn't matter. And they take a winnowing fork, they pick it up, and they throw it in the air. And the breeze comes and blows away the stuff that doesn't matter, the chaff that the wind taken away. And then the grain falls to the ground, and that's the, that's the harvest. Well, there's got to be like a breezeway. Right? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that there's some kind of covering, or maybe not. But ladies and gentlemen, don't think of some little teeny little pile of grain. I mean, it's probably the size of this room, and there's probably lots of them. Which is why Naomi says, make note of the fact where he's lying down. It's dark and there's, you know, it's big. All right? All right, so that's one thing. Now, here's another thing. There are a couple of, of, of myths. One of them is that Boaz is passed out drunk. All right, that is a myth. <laughs> I, I defy anybody to find that. In fact, you know what? I, really what I think has propelled that is that the King James Version says, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk... And his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap. 
Well, drunk is simply past tense of drink, and I think that uh, some poor people have said, oh, he's drunk. Boaz is passed out. He's sloppy drunk, and this, you know, this sleazy lady comes in. That's not it at all, all right? Boaz, it's simply the Bible reports that he was in good spirits. He had endorphin rush, and uh, he's lying down. He's in a good hard day's work. He lies down, okay? Then Ruth comes, and here's the other myth. In fact, I was telling, I was telling somebody earlier today that uh, I was reading a, a very reformed orthodox commentator that was stating some things that this other reformed orthodox commentator was slamming him for and he was footnoting him like that idiot says this and that idiot says this uh, ladies and gentlemen here's the comment that uh, that there's a, sec a, a suggestion of sexual compromise in this whole scene and sexual innuendo and sexual tension and, and, and maybe giving into sexual urges and so on where is that in here what if you're not a smart commentator and you're a dumb guy like me? What do you do when you have to stand in front of people and tell you what you think it means? Here's where I start. The terrible uh, problem with that view, I think, is that it's, it assumes a kind of behavior without taking some things into consideration, which we know. We know. What kind of portrait? Flip to chapter 2. What kind of portrait? I, I ask you. You know, shout out your answers. What kind of portrait is painted of the character of Boaz? What kind of guy is he like? Anybody know? He's generous. He certainly is. He's honorable. What else? He's upstanding. He's a man of standing. He's the boss. But, you know, he gives generously. And even, you know, Ruth makes this silly, this crazy request. Can I get kind of up close and uh, closer than everybody else? Because I really got to feed my mother-in-law, who I love. And they go, well, this kind of chick is weird. And Boaz shows up. He says, the Lord bless you. You know, he claims the name of the Lord. And his employees claim it back. He says, I told the men not to, to touch you. I told them, protect this girl. Don't mess with her. I mean, she's precious. I don't want her messed with at all. He even, uh, she, he has, she has dinner at the boss's house. He gives her some leftovers to take home. And he also tells the guys, uh, listen, don't embarrass her. Uh, but, you know, when she's gathering behind you, kind of every once in a while do one of these whoopsie. Oh, whoops, there's another one. Woohoo. You know, but don't let her in on it. But just let her get a lot. And he, he ends up feeding her mother-in-law and, 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 and does that heartily. That's the kind of person Boaz is, a, an, a, a righteous man. What kind of person is Ruth? What's her character like? Well, very explicitly, in chapter 3, verse 11, what kind of person is she like? All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, things don't pop up in the Scriptures by accident. The Scripture writer includes them for a reason, and you cannot get past these two things. And while, while righteous people do sin, I think that the Holy Spirit of God has included those so that we might not misconstrue some kind of hanky-panky going on when there's a greater story, which is God is the hero. And He has provided a kinsman redeemer that they never suspected would be there when they made their way from Moab. Now, despite great differences in their backgrounds and age, you know, he calls her my daughter, just like Naomi calls her my daughter. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Michael uh, Douglas and uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, you know, kind of situation. But, um, but greater than that, they have, uh, they have some, some very profound things in common, like they love and serve the one true God. They love and serve Naomi. 
um, they were both of the same moral character as we've, as we've discussed. And that's a critical thing to take note of when we look at this very strange set of circumstances. Now, um, verse uh, 7. Uh, no, verse 8. No, no, verse 7. End of verse 7. Ruth appro- he goes, lies down. He's asleep. Ruth approaches quietly, uncovers his feet, and lays down. Now, that's all very strange in this corner of the garment over me and all that stuff. It's all very weird, and we don't know why Naomi cooked up this plan. We don't know why the boss man is out there sleeping with the grain. And we don't know why Naomi said, tonight he will be winnowing barley. Maybe his foreman had the night off. Maybe he was out there. But there was something about this, this kooky plan that she cooked up that where all these details kind of fell into place. And I wonder, it's very probable that uh, Boaz, sleeping in the breezeway where they uh, winnow the grain, uh, she comes up, undoes his feet, and uh, in the middle of the night, they start getting a little bit cold. And he's not sleeping too good, you know, and he's kind of, what is that? And he, something startles him in the middle of the night. He looks down and he says, what is that, a raccoon? And he goes, oh, who's that lady? You know, <laughs> there's a lady at his feet. Who are you, lady? I'm Ruth. Will you marry me? I mean, what a way to wake up. Now, as far as the secrecy is concerned, she lays at his feet until morning, verse 14, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And Boaz says, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Does that mean that they did something they shouldn't have done? Or does that mean that they both know of the other's stellar reputation and they are so concerned with keeping that reputation intact and not dishonoring God with the appearance of evil? Now, I don't recommend that your, uh, your teenage kids uh, do that to get to know some friends of the opposite sex. But these are very strange situations and that the, the scriptures put them in there for some very specific reasons. Now, it's true that Ruth was a woman of noble character. It's true that Ruth was uh, faithful and bold and hardworking. You know, she, uh, they come into town. She doesn't sit around. She comes into town and she gets right to work. And she finds a field and she happens along this field and, and, and all that. Uh, it's true that uh, Naomi takes some, uh, some matters into her hands and makes some plans. But ladies and gentlemen, the whole thing is designed to placard God's sovereign control. You know, here you have these people making plans and God reigns sovereignly. And they say, okay, well, I guess I, I'm here in this situation right now. I ought to make these plans. And they make those plans, and it is shown that God reigns sovereignly. And, and more so than they can ever even know. The point of the story is God's sovereign control. And the writer uses a kind of wordplay to remind us of that sovereign control. If you remember back in chapter 2, um, verse uh, 3. Um, Naomi said to Ruth, go ahead, my daughter. So, you know, I, I wanna, I'm going to go uh, see if I can't pick up some grain and find some work. Naomi says, go ahead. So in verse 3, she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Wow. I mean, as it turned out, as the King James Version says, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz, the kindred of Elimelech. 
You know, what a shock. You remember that whole scene? Well, think about it. They wander in from Moab. A couple of worn-out gals. Not looking too good from the trip. Not smelling too good. They've got their luggage. No one's carrying it for them. You know, no roller wheels. They're tired. The situation's bleak, hopeless, dateless. Naomi told her, already told Ruth, if you come with me, you're not going to find a guy. Nobody's going to want a Moabitess. And over and over and over again, the scripture writer reminds us, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. It's hopeless. It's impossible. It's impossible. And yet, God's consummate control is shown. The very first morning of job hunting, Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. And uh, she gleans after the sheaves. That's very weird. She has dinner with the boss. She takes leftovers home to mom. And this is the weirdest part. He's the marrying kind. All these years. You know, he probably looked just like John Robertson. And all these years he's going, well, didn't happen for me. I, you know, I, maybe it never will. And all of a sudden he wakes up in the middle of the night and this lady's, you know, Gail's proposing. <laughs> Now, there's something that I don't want you to miss. Isn't that? Aren't they cute? There's something I don't want you to miss. <laughs> um, something that just just made me ball all over the computer keys um, as I was doing this. It's it's not really sad. It's I think it's I don't know if it, even if it's poignant, but it's meaningful that in verse 17 of chapter three, we have recorded for us by God. Something for some specific reason, which is uh, which, uh, Ruth's last words. The last words that Ruth utters in this book are found right there. And, and I, they're easy to blow right past, but I think they have this great weight. He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Isn't that meaningful? You know, when I was dating Tammy, we were courting, and, and I finally said the L word, and uh, things were kind of moving along pretty well, and she went out of town. She comes back, and there are new tires on her car. I put on there. And I'm telling you, that was a turning point with your mother, wasn't it? Because, uh... uh I mean, that a Yankee had uh, come into the family was uh, something, you know, big. And uh, when, when her mother found out that there were tires on her daughter's car, that changed her view of me. And I'll tell you this, I, it was probably, probably only four months ago, I, I told her mother, uh, Mimi, which I call mother, I'm the only one that calls her mother, I said, Mother, I want you to know, I love you, and I will always love your daughter now if you're a mother don't you want somebody to tell that to you about your daughter about your precious one I will always love your daughter when you're dead and gone I will always love your daughter and you can go to be with the Lord knowing that there's a man left behind that will always love your daughter what is this guy saying Hey, listen, take this grain back to your mother. You know, it ain't tires 
but it's a provision. Don't go home. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Don't you think that that's a, a, an indication of, of his, of his uh, intention? Now, I don't think that they had illicit love in the, in, on the threshing floor. You remember when you proposed? You got down on one knee, and uh, she said yes, and your heart just, you couldn't believe, I mean, you were pretty sure she was going to say yes, but when she does, you just, wow, she would do that with a guy like me forever? You know, they're exhilarated, they're thrilled, you know, and, and his thought is not, let's, let's get it on. You know, he's thinking, here is a token of my commitment. Take this to your mother-in-law, whom I now love too. You know, the, the first time he, gave, he sent some food home to mom, you know what went, went down? Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Um, Naomi says something very telling. Uh, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. See that relationship. You see her concept of, the, of God and his provisions. And then you see a provision sent home to, to the very heart of Naomi. And we see that the story, the focus comes on back to Naomi, who has laid out plans. She's got this little caper. But God is still deeply immersed in their lives. Two more things and I'm done. One of them is this. My friends Hank and Paige, I got their permission to say this. Hank and Paige Wright. Hank Wright, really. <laughs> You know, a year ago, Hank's running the Ironman marathon, and he's biking and climbing, and all. And he has a Jeep and all this stuff. And, <laughs> and they do this little thing around there. They're friends of ours. They do this little thing around the house where they'll say, snapshot. Something will happen. They'll say, snapshot. And what they mean by that is, if you had shown me, if you had held up a snapshot <laughs> a year ago, I would have laughed in your face. Hank, for instance. Hank, three children driving a minivan. <laughs> I mean, he would have said, what, are you kidding? No way! And yet, is not life full of those kinds of snapshots? In the life of these two people, the life of these three people, if you had shown Boaz a snapshot, he would have said, come on. A Moabite woman at my feet asked me to marry her because I'm your kin kinsman redeemer? Naomi, weeks ago, would have said, I can't imagine any kind of rescue. If you had shown a snapshot, she would have laughed in your face. And Ruth, it's hopeless. I know it's hopeless, but I love my mother-in-law. And all of a sudden, boom, snapshot. The point is, God reigns in consummate power. He knows all things. He is all-powerful to affect all things. And He has your good at heart. My last point is this. Verse 18. Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Oh, but let me read the King James Version. Naomi said, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. 
sit still, Bruce, until thou know how the matter will fall. Sit still, Dave, until thou know how the matter will fall. Sit still, Gary, until thou know how the matter will fall. Robin, sit still until thou know how the matter will fall. Beloved people of God, Naomi speaks yet today. Sit still until thou know how the matter will fall. How will the matter fall, God? Our hearts cry, how long? Our minds churn and we wonder about motives and endings and procedures and points. But you, O oh God, transcend these things. You reign on high. You are not thwarted. You are not surprised. You have the power to affect things. You have the knowledge to know what is right and good. You are pure and so your intentions are for our best interest. And you have expressed that kind intention to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we see things one event at a time and, and not, not well. You see everything. You know us intimately. You know what is moving around inside of our hearts so much better than we do, and in that we rest. I pray that you would bind us up, Lord, and I pray that our hearts would walk out of here with a greater sense of uh, your great caretaking uh, of us. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks, everybody.